0: This is Soccer Pilgrim, the podcast dedicated to soccer and travel, where each stadium is a shrine and its fans delay people. For the traveler, it is another culture to explore. Welcome to the Soccer Pilgrim podcast with Jason Kim. Hello everyone, welcome back to Soccer Pilgrim. I'm your host Jason Kim and today's episode is on a special city that we've all had in our bucket list to visit to perhaps even live in but definitely to visit and it has a reputation of being one of the most expensive cities in the world to live in and to visit as a tourist traveler what have you so when i think of london not only do i think about the how expensive it is but above all i think about the weather condition it was just cloudy and bad when i was there that doesn't mean london sucks it's just that i went in february and that's what you get when you go to february it's gonna drizzle it's gonna be two degrees although there was like two three days of straight sunshine which was very rare apparently and very nice but other than that i mean london's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun if you got a if you got some money to spend and if you have friends that live there it's a lot of fun and when i think of london i am brought back to that bad weather but also i'm I'm also I'm also reminiscent of or reminiscing rather of just walking through the streets of London and just telling myself I was like dude you're in London this is it like this is this is what everybody dreams of going to visiting and this is what all the history books talk about and you know it's London <laughs> and the one thing I noticed and the first impression I got was there's a lot of tourists I heard more French spoken than English that's not an exaggeration I definitely heard more French more Spanish more Italian than English. I heard more Korean and more Chinese than English. And I always ask locals to live in London. They always tell me that London is not really a good representation of England, but... It is a great representation of the cosmopolitan aspect of England. London's sort of, it's an international city. It is the English, it is the only English international, not the only, but the English international city, if you will. It's, when you go there, there's people from everywhere. But when you do meet locals, it's kind of special. Because they definitely do have that, hello governor, that like kind of accent. (laughs) That East London, that East London, uh, Courtney accent. Cockney or Courtney, I don't know. Anyway. I've been to East London, and they do sound like that. And then when I, when you think more of London, I think of the faint smells of Indian food at every other street, the red brick buildings of East London, the white Victorian homes of West London, which reminds me a lot of the reminds me a lot of the homes in Westmount, right adjacent to uh, Sherbrooke Street in Westmount. I'm also reminded of that one drunken night I spent in South London with with some friends, and. Then it was us leading to a club in North London in Tottenham called Coco with a K. And there's a cover charge, very expensive, like 30-pound cover charge. It was ridiculous because it's like, uh, anyway, I don't want to get into that. (laughs) And well, you get into that club and there was an altercation at the club. And that's all I remember from Tottenham and South London, which was just one big drunken haze, which was a lot of fun at the end of the day. And I could still... and, And then one last thing that the one most memorable aspect of London I could remember is I could still hear the angry West Ham fans when they conceded a last-minute equalizer. I went to go watch a West Ham game, and I just remember them being so bitterly disappointed that they just had to fight someone to get that energy out. It was kind of funny to watch, but also kind of frightening. (laughs) But growing up as a millennial, or growing up in the millennial era, rather, London has captured our imagination through movies, television shows, singers, actors, rappers, and of course through football or soccer (laughs) london is home to nine different professional clubs nine different professional football clubs and that's just within the premier league and the championship league that's only the first two top divisions of professional soccer and they have nine clubs within one city that's a lot it's like in new york city there's two hockey teams two basketball teams two baseball teams two soccer teams but they're all in different sports so when you have a place like London where the main sport is football and then you got rugby and cricket, but rugby comes in second, cricket comes in third in terms of team sports, not individual sports. You can tell that soccer is not just the most important sport, but it is a cultural landmark in the place like London. It's not just in London, but in the UK in general and how much soccer means to this country. And also knowing that soccer is a working class sport, it also tells you london's working-class roots in the city and it's a lot you know you can't build an empire with only rich people you gotta build it with a lot of poor people And that's a fact of empires above all to visit london without visiting wembley is akin to going to rome and not visiting saint peter's basilica in the vatican alas that's what happened to me because of that drunken night i spoke of i planned on going the next morning to see wembley and get taking a tour but I was hungover, and I woke up at like 1 or 2 p.m. and went straight to the British Museum as, instead of going to Wembley. And also, because every museum in the UK is free, so do that first. And so that definitely left a blank spot or unfulfilled or an unfulfilled uh, objective in my time in London, which was visiting Wembley. I've seen... I've seen the Emirates Stadium from the outside. I never went in, but I saw the Emirates Stadium from the outside. I went to a Premier League game, but I didn't go to Wembley. And you might be asking, what's the big deal with Wembley? Isn't that just a stadium? Like, why does that matter? You, you, you guys and jocks and stadiums and fanboying over buildings <laughs> where people go watch a game once a week. Well, let me get let me break it down. Why Wembley is a special place for for football. Wembley is iconic for not just being. The home of English of the English national team, it is the spiritual home of all English football. It's really the Mecca. When I mean Mecca, I mean the actual physical black, like the black stone in the middle of, of the city of Mecca where all the Muslims, you know, spin around it and pray and do the pilgrimage. In terms of, of I guess of a cultural space it occupies, Wembley is definitely that in terms of football culture, not just in English football culture but throughout the world. It is a stadium that is void of club loyalty. Like there is no club that plays or calls it home permanently. Tottenham played there for like a season and a half when their stadium was being rebuilt, which you know that. But that doesn't really count because it's understandable. But other than that, the only team that calls Wembley its permanent home is the English football team. It is the national team, the Three Lions. And the same thing in uh, France. It's Stade de France. It's is the Stade de France or Stade de Princes? Uh, I forget which one, but Stade de France—it's it—that's the home of the French national team, as an example. So when you—I remember seeing a picture in a magazine or somewhere where, if when you take a tour of Wembley, you, they don't let you step on the grass. But I mean, that's that's the place with any other soccer stadium—they won't let you step on the grass because that's perhaps the most important aspect of this entire operation. But they have like a chain that blocks you from going further. And there's a sign on the chain saying this: you're stepping on sacred ground or something something of that sort. I remember the term being sacred ground. And I remember thinking to myself, I was "Like this is how much the English hold or respect Wembley. Is that this is a very special place in the English hearts and minds when it comes to sports and culture. That this is a very iconic place. And one of the main reasons why it's so iconic is because that was the place where... The English won its first and only World Cup in 1966. And Wembley becomes a special place. Same thing in Rio de Janeiro. For a lot of people, they don't realize Rio de Janeiro is not the capital of Brazil, but Brasilia is the capital of Brazil. But Rio captures that imagination because it's such a postcard city. But also in terms of football, the Maracanã, that's where they won the World Cup Brazil. I think the first World Cup was in the Maracanã Rio de Janeiro. So it places take on special meaning when success has been accomplished there. And especially for the English, the inventors of the game, Wembley becomes a sacred site for, well, just beyond a sacred site for winning the World Cup. So let's get into a bit of the history of the stadium itself. So the FA, actually no, before we get into the, state, before we get into the history, there's one more fact I need to bring up is that another thing that makes Wembley special is because every FA Cup final happens there. FA Cup, the uh, Football Association Cup. It is the oldest soccer cup competition in the world. This competition was played before they even invented any English league system. They had this cup knockout competition before the league system, and it's and everybody loves it because the, it was. It seems like at the club level in England, the FA Cup is like the World Cup. You take it, you treat it with respect. That this is a giant killer. That's this is an opportunity for small teams to defeat the bigger teams and showcase the talent. I mean, the FA Cup is a great example of David versus Goliath in many um, in many situations. I'll talk about one specific one a little bit later. And also, they, the Wembley also hosts a few Champions League finals. I think 2012 Champions League final, Manchester United versus uh, Barcelona was that was done at Wembley, and that was a big game. But yeah, but other than the Champions League finals and the FA Cup and also being a host of FA, many FA Cup games, the magic of Wembley is founded in its history. In fact, the current stadium is... In fact, the current stadium is a complete reconstruction of the old Wembley Stadium. Old Wembley Stadium was constructed in 1923 and was demolished in 2002 and later rebuilt into new Wembley Stadium in 2007 or complete construction in 2007. So for over... For, for pretty much 80 years... Old Wembley, the old version of Wembley, it's it's uh, has been standing there for eighty years. And to give you an idea of how iconic Old Wembley was, this is where the Live Aid concert was held. Remember, if you watch the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody movie about Queen, that and that last scene at the movie where uh, where Queen is performing inside a inside of a stadium, that was inside Old Wembley. And it, that was considered the greatest Queen live Queen performance of all time. Uh, it was at that Live Aid concert. I mean, if you watched the film, it was incredible. Then you watched a real concert on YouTube; it's incredible. And a lot of that magic captures a lot. A lot of that magic comes from just performing at Wembley because that's how much Wembley means to English culture. But also, it seem it also seems like when the fans enter Wembley, there's a there's like a static energy among them. It's like red. Like, this is the venue to have a concert. This is the venue to play football. This is the venue to even watch a rugby game. Although most of the rugby matches are happening in Twickenham, like in another borough in London. But at, still, it's it's a magical place. So they demolished it and built a new one. And I, 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 it has a lot to do with, like, crumbling infrastructure. We just got to rebuild this thing, make it more modern and better. And the new Wembley that we have today is, is fantastic. It's gorgeous. It looks... It's it's imposing. It stands out of the skyline. There's a white arches that go above the stadium, and that will stand out from miles from you, as you approach it. Approaching Wembley is like approaching Saint Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. You can walk to Saint Peter's Basilica from I don't know like a kilometer away, and it just feels like you could see it from afar. And as you walk closer and closer and closer, it gets bigger and bigger, and it poses on you. Next thing you know, it's on top of you, and you feel like you're being sucked inside into this huge thing that is greater than you that's what Wembley makes you feel that this stadium is may not be as old and historic as St. Peter's Basilica but the grandiose vibe of the stadium makes you feel that this is English football is greater than you and will forever be greater than you because this is not just sports it's genuinely as I keep saying it's culture it's mainstream culture it's English identity and you know and it but that being said, the current Wembley is still regarded and held with the highest respect in world football. Every player dreams to play at Wembley in front of the roaring English fans. I mean, that must be such a thrill for an athlete, and at this point a performer. So the current stadium, completed, completed construction in 2007, it can hold up to 90,000 people. That's a huge stadium. And most iconic feature is the white arch above the stadium, as I said, as I just said. And also the the ninety thousand capacity that fluctuates it, it tends to fluctuate I think with concert venues and depending what games are being held they sometimes hold NFL games there so that's also kind of that's actually really interesting uh, there's a lot of uh, NFL exhibition games happening in in London and in England in the last few years so it was kind of interesting to see football going to football the most memorable game in recent history for me at least. It was definitely the Wigan Athletic beating Manchester City at the FA Cup final at Wembley. As I said just before, FA Cup final has a reputation of being giant killers, where David defeats Goliath, and Wigan Athletic is no giant. They them beating Manchester City that year at the FA Cup final at 2014 or 2015 was a, or 2013 rather. It was a very 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 big deal because Manchester City was still like obviously the favorites to win everything, but You have this Wigan side that was essentially nobody. They, really nobody, except for the only name I know that that came out of Wigan is Will Griggs. (laughs) And alas, Will Griggs was the only one to score a goal against Wembley. Bringing Wigan Athletic to FA Cup glory and cementing their names in FA Cup history of defeating the Giants and Manchester City at Wembley. And of course, that moment created legends, you know. They created a legend out of Will Griggs. And here's a song about Will Griggs by North Irish fans in Euro 2016. And this is about 20,000 Irish fans singing his name. So those are... Irish fans, North Irish fans singing Will Griggs, but here is a song about the English fans or about English football, and we've heard this song everywhere, if especially if you watch English football, you know the song, you know the slogan, you know the sentence. Uh, football's coming home, it's written by a band called the Three Lions, and they wrote this song in the 90s, 96, and it was. it's a song that sort of resurfaced in the 2018 World Cup when England had a a very promising squad, but also made it to the semi-final. Alright, so let's get into the English national team. So... The English national team was um, is obviously one of the oldest English, I mean, the oldest national teams in world football. I mean, the English FA, its football association, was created in eighteen sixty three to give you an idea, and pretty much the English become kind of what Canada is to ice hockey or what America is to baseball. They've sort of become the standard of how to do it or how to run it, not necessarily how to win it. That's more the Brazilians, but in terms of how to structure your team and how to structure your leagues and how to structure everything about football or soccer, everyone looked to the English because they're the inventors of it, of course. And they're the ones that spread the game around. And the English football team, national team, is perhaps the most recognizable European teams on the planet. Everybody knows the English national team or knows of their existence and knows how good they are. But obviously, the most popular national team is definitely Brazil. You don't really need to know any names, but you see the Brazil jersey, you know what it is. That's the power of how good Brazil is. And also, that's the influence that Brazil has in the global culture. That when you see Brazil jersey, you just know. When you think of Brazil, you just think of soccer. But also, the reason why Brazil is so popular is because they won five World Cups, and English only got one World Cup, and that was in '66, which no one remembers. And Brazil, the last time they won the World Cup was in 2002, which I remember, and a lot of people still do remember. So that being said, the English don't have any Euro titles as well. They don't have a lot of Euro titles. So them going into the Euro final against Italy at Wembley is a very, very, very big deal. I'll get to that at the end and talk about how I think that game is going to go out. And before we get to it, I also want to talk about some of the rivals England had. In the last episode, I talked about the main rivals that Italy had as a country. And again... Turning to trusty Wikipedia, I saw I kind of copy paste what it said there because I, I first I liked what it said. Well, liked it. like I'm not a historian of everything, but everything that was written here made sense to me and it was interesting. And I didn't. And to me, it was relatively new, except for uh, except for two of the countries. But one of the countries kind of surprised me that it was a rival. I, I didn't realize that. So, England has three main rivals with other footballing nations The first one, the, ri- the rivalry with Germany Is considered to be the main to be mainly an English phenomenon <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> the rivalry with Germany is considered to be mainly an English phenomenon So, does, does that mean that the English only see this as a rivalry And the Germans don't see the English as rivals? Is that what it's saying? If so, that is hilarious Anyway, let's keep reading in the run up to any competition match between the two teams, many UK newspapers will print articles detailing results of previous encounters. That is so true, such as those in 66 and 1990. Football fans in England often consider Germany to be their main sporting rivals and care more about the rivalry than those with other nations. Most German fans consider the Netherlands or Italy to be the traditional footballing rivals. As such, usually the rivalry is not taken quite seriously. In, in Germany, as it does in England, that is so funny. So, basically, the Germans don't even consider the English to be their main rivals, they consider the Netherlands or Italy to be their main rivals. Which, with Italy, it makes sense because it's Italians, they're great at football. Germany, three World Cups or four World Cups. Oh, no, actually, yeah, Germany, Italy are both tied with four World Cups, so that rivalry is much more intense. Netherlands and Germany make sense, they're both kind of like I think, I think that's more of a historical thing between the Netherlands and Germany. Both uh, Germanic, they both speak Germanic languages. Uh, I, I, I mean, Netherlands, like Dutch and German in terms of language is quite, there's a lot of similarities from my, what I gathered. But anyway, let's move on. It's just funny that the English view the Germans as rivals, but the Germans don't view the English as rivals. That is hilarious. Anyway, second, the rivalry with Scotland. I brought this up earlier this season when I went over the uh, Glasgow episode. The rivalry with Scotland is one of the fiercest international rivalries that exist, very true, we saw that at Wembley, in terms of the fans and the energy and how they played, it was, it was beautiful to watch. It is the oldest international fixture in the world, first played in 1872 at Hamilton Crescent, Glasgow, which I think I brought that up in the Glasgow episode. The history of the British Isles has led, much, has led to much rivalry between the nations in many forms. And the social and cultural effects of centuries of antagonism and conflict between the two have contributed to intense nature... Oh, wow, I can't read today. So basically, all the political and historical events and conflicts that happened within or between Scotland and England pretty much permeated into soccer and it made those uh, sporting rivalries way more intense and way more uh, emotional. Scottish nationalism has also been a factor in the Scots' desire to defeat England above all other rivals, with Scottish sports journalists traditionally referring to the English as Old Enemy Old, spelt as A-U-L-D because that's Scotch English. The footballing rivalry has diminished somewhat since the late 1970s because Scotland's not been that great, particularly since the annual fixture stopped in 1989. Oh, there's an annual fixture between England and Scotland? Wow, that, would, that must have been mad. For England... Games against Germany and Argentina are now considered to be more important than historic rival with Scotland. So with Scotland and England, it's it's much more of a cultural historical affair than it is a sporting affair. Whereas the rivalry between Germany and now Argentina is considered more sporting, which makes sense because Argentina for Germany are incredible footballing nations. So last one. Well, last one. The last one is Argentina, which honestly kind of surprised me, but also makes sense. The rivalry with Argentina is highly competitive. Games between the two teams, even those that are only friendly matches, are often marked by notable and sometimes controversial incidents such as in 1986. Oh, uh, that's the um, Hand of God goal. 1986 is, I think, when... Yeah, 1986 is when uh, Diego Maradona did the Hand of God goal in Mexico against England at the final. So for those who don't know, just look up Maradona, Hand of God, rest in peace Maradona. He scored a controversial goal where someone crossed the ball in, and he tried to head the ball into net, but because he's somewhat of a short man and he couldn't reach the ball, he puts his hand over his head and sort of knocks the ball in and kind of disguising it as a header. And all the English, you can see all the English players just freaking out like that was a handball, and the ref didn't call it because there was no instant replay at the time, and he got away with it. Highly controversial. The rivalry between Argentina and, and uh, England is unusual in that it is an intercontinental one. Typically, such footballing rivalries exist between countries that are close to one another. For example, France-Italy, Argentina-Brazil. England is regarded in Argentina as one of the major rivals of the national football team, matched only by Brazil and Uruguay. Wow. The rivalry is, to a lesser extent, reciprocal in England. Locally described as a grudge match, although matches against Germany carry a greater significance in popular perception. Yeah. The rivalry emerged across several games during the later half of the 20th century, even though as of 2008, the teams have played each other on only 14 occasions in full international matches. So only played against each other 14 times. Only half handful times. The rivalry was intensified, particularly in Argentina, by non-footballing events, especially the 1982 Falkland Wars between Argentina and the United Kingdom. Alright, 1982, Margaret Thatcher administration was in power of the UK. And the Falklands are like these islands off the west coast of Argentina that was... That is still current under British rule or British. This uh, is a British territory, and at the time, Argentina had gone through a coup d'état, and a lot of uh, militarists have taken control of the government and had conscription throughout Argentina and trying to make Argentina kind of like a military state, and they wanted to invade and take the Falkland Islands from the UK, and the UK responded by sending the Royal Marines, its navy, and you know, and its army essentially to fight off the Argentinians. And yeah, and so, and that was recent. So, if you want to put that into the mix, I, I man, footballing at that time must have been so intense in the 80s and 90s because people would have remembered the Falkland War, so it could have been tense. But now it's just it feels more sporting because there's so much history, be, there's so many historical matches between these two countries that it seems like an England versus Argentina game right now would be so amazing. Messy on one side, and then you have this new generation of English talents coming through that are also just so much fun to watch so yeah so these are the three main rivals of england it's argentina germany and of course scotland but for myself personally i would even add france as one of the rivals perhaps that's more of a historical mind frame that i have so i'm thinking more historically france and england have been rivals since forever but at the same time it's there's so many french living in london and so many english that visit paris or live in paris well, I don't know. The Eng- English don't do well traveling abroad, <laughs> but um, but there's a connection where London to Paris is only a two-hour train ride or an hour and a half or what have you, and a plane ride's only 30 minutes. They're so close to each other, but yet so different. But at the same time, they've been historical political rivals since forever, but now they're the closest of allies. I feel like that kind of rivalry would be a lot of fun to watch. I mean, it still is. France versus England would be an incredible game, but I would even add France versus England as a rivalry, for me at least. But out of all this, the most important thing to learn is that the Germans don't consider the English rivals, and that is so funny because the English really hype themselves up every time they play Germany. And one of those reasons is because the English always lose to the Germans at penalties. The English could play super well and take it to penalties, and they always end up losing to Germans because the Germans are just that good at penalties. You might say, well, penalties are easy, but it, it like I said in the in the Munich episode... Penalties are more of a state of mind and your technique. If your technique is on point and if you're keeping a cool level head, your penalty will do well. Because it's very easy for you to lose your cool, and then if you lose your cool, your technique performance will be poor. Executing that right technique to put the ball in the net, you might mess that up. But speaking about penalties and winning matches and winning cups, the English have yet to win the Euros. And I would love to see them win the Euros. But this Italy team is On fire they are so good they are so fun to watch they are so consistent and they're confident and they have the swagger about them the way they carry themselves where they know that they could do this they could win of course at the final and they've and they've proven themselves by defeating Spain convincingly and defeating defeating Belgium like knocking out Belgium in the most convincing way I'm I'm not too worried about Italy but they do want. They did go to penalties. They did go to penalties in the last round. And historically speaking, as brought up by AK from the Derby Cast, team historically speaking, teams in the Euros that go to the penalty rounds in the last game and then go to the ne- and go to penalties again in the second game tend to lose the penalty rounds in that second game. I do not know what that means. I do not know why that's the case. But that's a trend that one has observed for England and their chance of winning it. The one thing I noticed with Italy's defense is that they have a hard time dealing with unpredictable fast players as showcased in in the game against Belgium against with Jeremy Doku, this 19-year-old guy that no one knew who he was before the game started. But everyone's like, who's this random kid? It's like, is is Belgium dad injured that they're calling up random 19-year-olds? But he was so good, this 19-year-old Jeremy Doku. He gave Italy a hard time. He was able to dribble past some very seasoned like incredibly seasoned defenders who are experienced. And all the defenders on Italy play for some of the top clubs throughout Italy. And this guy from a small club in France, uh, Rennes, he was just dribbling past them around them, giving them a hard time, taking shots, finding opportunities to shoot. So, what I see here with Jeremy Doku is that he was good to dribble in tight spaces. He's quick and strong and could shoot when given the opportunity. And England need to exploit that because they have a lot of players who could do that for them. Raheem Sterling being one, Jack Grealish being another one. I don't watch enough Jadon Sancho to be confident in that answer also because he's, he's never playing for England, which is absurd. I don't understand why. Mason Mounts could beat that guy. Mason Mounts quite quick. So if England really want to beat Italy, they really need to... First, I think that the English really need to get the head together because the Italians' mental state is, in my opinion, the Italian mental mentality is way stronger than the English mentality right now because what the English are riding on is this emotional wave of it's coming home. Football's coming home. And the way I'm seeing it is that it's as if everything was planned for the English to win this Euro. You know, they've played the most home games at Wembley. They've traveled the least amount. And the Italians went from Rome to Baku, Azerbaijan. They they went to Munich. They went, they went everywhere. They went to almost all the venues available, almost all of them. And the English played mostly at home. So if the English were to win, I don't want to say it's a conspiracy, but in my opinion, I think it was done so to make it easier for them. Because think about their bracket of reaching the final. They played against easier teams, easier matchups. You know, they played Denmark. They played... So they played Ukraine, which was an easy game. They played the Czech Republic again; it's easy. Like it's it's these are games that the English would should be winning at ease, and they did. And they beat them easily. Maybe not with Denmark. Denmark was a close call, and that was a fun game. So my prediction when it comes to England versus Italy, I want to say Italy because they they are playing the better football. But the English are English are great. They're. The center midfield pairing of uh, Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice is one of my favorite things to watch right now because it's so no, no nonsense. They get the job done. They're always where they need to be, and they always m- clean up the mistakes that the forwards would make. And I just love watching Declan Rice and uh, Calvin Phillips, and they're also physical beasts. They could dribble, they could pass, they could cross, they could dr- uh, they could shoot. I mean, and they're holding defensive midfielders. That I'm excited. I'm just excited to watch see this matchup because it'll be a good game. Yeah, so if there's any weakness to the Italian side, it's definitely dealing with pacey wingers and pacey, like, fast forwards. You know, like, or fast forwards are very technical dribblers like Grealish and Sterling. I think if Grealish and Sterling were to start, I think, I do think that uh, Italy will have a hard time. But... Italians, all they need to do is to score one goal and shut it down, because I don't think the English will be able to break down the Italian defense unless Harry Kane does some crazy magical half chance goal, which he can, because it's Harry Kane. So that's why it's hard for me to predict who would actually win. You know, the English had an easier time making it to the final. The Italians have proven themselves against tougher opponents, like very tough opponents, to make it where they want, where they where they are now. And they played convincingly The Italians. The English at times had not played convincingly. But what has them going is that it's that stupid song that I love. It's coming home. And I feel like that's been the beating drum of this entire English campaign in the Euros. Like, it's coming home. It has to be home. Imagine England winning the Euros at Wembley against Italy. This is why I feel like this is all kind of scripted. I feel like this was all, not scripted, but like... I feel like the organizers have done this on purpose for hoping that the English would win the Euros. Unless they've planned it for the English to win Euros, then I wouldn't be—I'd be—I'd be, uh, I'd be, I'd be bummed out and sad because it'd be like another whole FIFA thing or Calcio Gator. I don't know. I'm not—I'm not, I'm not calling—I'm not saying there's corruption, but the English definitely did uh, have some sort of preferential treatment when it comes to the organization of games and venues. But that being said, I don't know. I just want to see a fun game, a memorable game, and I'll be. I'll be at an English pub next to an Italian cafe to watch this game. So I am I am very excited about Sunday. So for all those who listen, thank you for listening. Thank you for being an audience. Thank you for sticking by all these uh, the season of the Euros. I'll be releasing one more episode talking about the final itself. And I'll release that on Monday. And yeah, so thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow and subscribe this podcast, Soccer Pilgrim on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Google Podcasts, and any other podcast streaming platforms. Also, you can follow Soccer Pilgrim at Instagram, and you can follow my personal Instagram account at Jason underscore spelled G-I-S-O-O on Instagram. And once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for being an audience. My name is Jason Kim from Montreal. This is SoccerPilgrim. Thank you.